Hello, everyone, and welcome to Placing Faces, the show where we sit down with some of the most influential casting directors in all of Hollywood and across the entertainment spectrum. I'm your host, Charlie Chappell, and today we get to chat with casting director, writer, and writer of bicycles, Jen Rudin. Jen has been in the industry from the age of eight, starting as a child actor and finding her calling to casting at 12. She's also cast some really awesome movies. The Incredibles, The Wild, Princess and the Frog, Meet the Robinsons, Frankenweenie, The American Side, She's Funny That Way, and her Ardios Award-nominated short film, she wrote and cast Lucy in the Sky. Jen also wrote a book called Confessions of a Casting Director that we'll get into. I think it's a great book to get a really broad understanding of the entertainment world as told through her lens. But you don't have to take my word for it. Enjoy your commute today, and I hope that you learn as much as I did. Jen Rudy, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. I really, really appreciate you taking the time, um, especially at this time of year. Nobody seems to want to do anything at this time of year in oh, the Hollywood yeah. entertainment industry. <laughs> I'm okay. I actually just got back from a week in Florida, so I'm I'm good. I'm ready ah, to go back to work. Yes. Okay. Okay. So you you you're raring to work. Yes. Before and the, then you got to take the, a couple weeks off. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, uh, so just jumping right into it, <clears throat> I actually kind of want to start with something that doesn't really have to do with casting at all. Uh, I found it in your book, which we will talk about later. Certainly, you're into long distance cycling. Are you still <laughs> yes. into long distance cycling? And I, yeah, next part of the question. And just, you, you talk about doing 345 miles in like three days or four days. Like that sounds hard. It's a wonderful sport. I've always been athletic and rode my bike around the University of Wisconsin campus. And so when I moved back to New York in the 90s, I was cycling. But I got very, uh, very serious about cycling around 2008. And it's actually how I met my, my husband. Um, we met in the New York Cycle Club. Um, he's a much more fanatic cyclist than I am. Like he'll go out in 30 degree weather. I like to ride my bike when it's sunny and warm. But um, uh-huh. we've done a lot of, um, you know, we're in the New York Cycle Club and, uh, and I lead a lot of rides for them. And, and we also go um, once a year, probably to Europe with, with part of our club doing um, something epic. Like this past summer, we were in Provence in France and we mm-hmm. climbed Mont Ventoux, um, which is something that they do on the Tour de France. And the, the day that we did it, it was great because we didn't have any wind. Usually they, they can close off your descent if it's too windy. And um, we've been to Spain and Corsica and Austria and Colorado and Wyoming and um, and it's uh, you know it's it's a great sport and it actually it's really good for my brain because it's like you're focusing on the road and it lets ideas percolate. It's also quite time consuming, which is another thing too. You can't just like go for a quick twenty minute ride the way you can do a twenty minute run. It, it requires a lot of time. But I gotta say, the New York Cycle Club, lots of couples have met, and uh, we've got great friends and people I never would have met who aren't in show business are in the club. So it keeps me sane and keeps us um, fit and healthy. So it's a great sport. And obviously now I do indoor cycling in the winter since I'm, I'm in New York and do like you know cycle at Equinox or Soul Cycle and 
um, keep it up. So yeah, it's really fun. It's, and it's so symbolic, you know, like you're descending, you're descending down a mountain and you have to figure out the turn and you know, you're climbing up the hill and like, there's nobody to like get you up there. Like it's, there's all this symbolism, you know, you gotta mm -hmm. get yourself up the hill and never look back. And you know, and you really, it's the same thing like with acting, like if you don't keep on training and keep yourself logging your hours on the bicycle, the way you log your hours in an acting class or an on camera audition, mm -hmm. um, your, your performance is going to suffer. You know, this summer I didn't log enough hours and, you know, I felt it a little bit on my bike in Provence. I didn't log enough time in the saddle. So mm -hmm. it's great, you know, it's, it's very symbolic for how we should live our lives, I think. Absolutely. Um, discipline um, and focus. Yeah, I think, I think that the discipline and focus aspect of uh, the entertainment industry is often lost. Um, there, there are far too many people, I think, who think that it's that lack of discipline that's what makes them who they are. So they have to embrace that. And, and I think that it's, it's that discipline, even the people who seem undisciplined that do really well have it. Yeah, because it's like if you're going to call yourself a professional actor or a professional casting director or a professional cyclist, you have to act like a professional and, and take it really seriously. And so I, I, I hate when I meet flaky actors. It's like, oh, I, you know, I just got the audition sides last night and I didn't get to finish the script. And it's like, you know, we or the traffic or the subway. And it's like we all had to travel to get here. We've all been through it. You know, as my husband says, and it's a chapter in the book, leave early and bring a raincoat, which is yep. like his thing. And like I used it as a chapter chapter in mm -hmm. how to prepare for auditions but it's the truth like I'm, I'm on that 7 a.m. flight to, to LAX I, I, I'm on that first one out because I don't you know get there early <laughs> you got things to do yeah yeah absolutely it's, it's really about you know the, there are so few things you can control when you're auditioning or in your acting career but you can control to the best of, of your ability getting someplace on time um, Absolutely, even if you and are you in LA. <laughs> yourself and how you approach things and your professionalism and and those <laughs> aspects I think you have to focus on because the other aspects you have no control over. Exactly, you're, you're yep. Control over. Yep, that is and, true. And, and, and it's, everything. there's a thousand different things that go into the decision that's made. So you do your best, and and you know you have to really work at that to actually do your best because the truth of the matter is there's a lot of people who want to do this. Right. And if you don't know your lines, the next person coming in, they're going to know their they lines. Do. And Absolutely. so that's the way it goes. And, and they worked with their acting coach and they, yeah. you know, did the wardrobe and they did all of the things that they were supposed to do. So if you're not, you're, you're, you're <laughs> wasting everyone's time. That is correct. Yep. Yeah. Um, so let's step back a little bit. Thank you for, for uh, engaging on me with, with the <laughs> cycling thing and I'm actually bringing it around to casting, which I really do appreciate. Um, but let's step back and talk about the story of your life. We've got, you, again, you've got it in your book. So everybody out there, if you get the chance, check out Confessions of a Casting Director. Uh, it's on jenrudin.com. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, and it's got a little bit of a breakdown of the early part of your life, but could we sum it up a little bit of where you came from, how you got into the industry, because you got into it really young, yep. and then kind of how you got into the world of casting? Sure. So uh, I grew up in New York City. I'm from the Upper East Side, so I'm actually a true New Yorker, but I, I have a Midwestern accent because my mom is from Illinois. <laughs> my dad uh, is from I was Virginia. wondering about that. Nobody <laughs> ever thinks I'm an authentic New Yorker, <laughs> but I truly am. I grew up in Manhattan, and... Um, 
and uh, I desperately um, wanted to be on the Brady Bunch. And so I grew up in the late ah. 70s, in the 1980s, and uh, the Brady Bunch was was on every night in our house. It was on, you know, 6.30 and then 7.30, and we had to eat dinner in that really quick half hour before running back to the television. And I wanted to be Cindy, and my older sister, is you know, wanted to be Jan or Marsha, or we sort of you know, change depending on the evening. And I actually wrote a letter to Channel 5 and said if they ever, like I was my own agent, you know, if you ever need a new Cindy for some reason or you're recasting, <laughs> um, here I am and I've got pigtails and, and ribbons and all that. And some nice person wrote me back from, from Channel 5 and said, Dear Jennifer, thank you so much for your letter. We've actually, the show's in syndication. It's already, they've already filmed them. Um, good luck. So that was the first letter that I wrote. And I also wrote a letter to the, um, theater where Annie was playing on Broadway and mm -hmm. the lovely stage manager also wrote me back and said you know if you're four foot eleven or under and you can sing you call call the stage manager's office and we'll let you know the next time there's audition so I was sort of proactive in getting my career started but the reality mm -hmm. is that well, I, uh, to, I, I kind of <laughs> want to pull on something there you were proactive but you also heard back from people I did I got letters back which is uh, kind of rare do you think that that kind of contributed to your continuing to? Um, it was yeah. certainly exciting when my father gave me a piece of mail and the return address was the Annie icon. It mm -hmm. certainly was exciting. Um, I think it was encouraging that somebody took the time to write me back, um, considering that I was eight years old. Um, I do know that um, that somebody must have mailed the letters. I must have given them to my parents and they, they put them in the mailbox. So it's not like I was sneaking around trying to, to start mm -hmm. my acting career. The, the big break came in third grade. I um, went to my friend's birthday party and his father was a creative director at Ogilvy and, and Mather, the advertising agency. And so he said, Jenny's really, you know, seems like she wants to be acting and, and does she want to do commercials? And so he actually set me up to meet a, a kid's agent when I was eight. So um, mm -hmm. it really is about being in the right place at the right time. And, and I was just raring to go, you know, I was in that Hebrew school production of Charlie Brown discovers Hanukkah and I was Linus, but I knew everybody else's lines and I stood on stage that night and I, I felt, you know, I was in charge. And, and so, um, so I, I met with this commercial agent and she um, started to send me out and I got a couple callbacks after being scared out of my mind at the first Jell-O audition. And then my parents uh, found an ad in the back of the New York Times Magazine for the famous Stage Door Manor Performing Arts Training Center where so many uh, um, people like Zach Braff and Natalie Portman um, and uh, have, have gone. And so they sent me the summer of 1982. So I was going into fifth grade, so I was nine, and they sent me for three weeks and that sort of launched me into loving it and also got me a, my manager, Jean Fox, who at the time she and her business partner, Adrian Albert, started to represent so many young actors both from Stage Door, um, some of the young actors they represented, Mira Sorvino, Josh Charles, Lacey Chabert, like they just, Josh Hamilton, um, they launched this really, really successful kids management company in the 80s and 90s. And um, I think Gene is still representing a few people today, but so that's kind of how, it, and then so by fifth grade, I was really auditioning for real stuff more than just commercials. And be, because I lived in Manhattan, it was easy for my mother to pick me up after school and just we'd just go to the audition because it wasn't about getting into the city and taking trains and it was just about the crosstown bus. And so it was kind of, you know, I think if 
it's actually, my mother said if we lived in New Jersey, she wouldn't have done it. She just didn't want to do the schlepping. But because we lived in Manhattan, it was kind of my backyard, my, my you know, my backyard of sorts. So I was lucky um, to, to get those opportunities. And also this was the 80s, you know, now there's 10,000 kids auditioning. Back then it was maybe... I don't know, 200. I mean, you just didn't, you didn't have any technology. Uh-huh. So it's a small so you had to schlep people. people around and it was a much smaller. Yeah. Type. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, we saw the same, I saw the same girls at every audition and some of them are, are, are still friends of mine and some of them are, are not friends, but just people that I knew. And we all saw each other and we were all represented mostly by the same manager. We freelanced with different talent agents at the time and it was just a very small world. And so if I didn't get it, I would just find out who did get the part. It was, you know, um, that's how small the world was back then. And also there was no, you know, there was no, there was no tech. We had an answering machine and VCR that was, that was the technology. So things were a little easier back then, I think. Yeah. So that transition out of acting, um, I know in the book you say that you had uh, in, in like your high school years, maybe into college, where you had, you were taking your summers and you had started working actually with uh, some fairly big casting directors at the time who are now or have been Mm-hmm. VPs of exec casting at uh, Fox and at uh, I'm blanking on yeah Meg. Warner Brothers Meg Warner Simon Bro- at Warner Brothers yeah. Marshall at the Fox yeah I always felt in my auditions that as a child I always was interested in casting because I didn't really like auditioning and and the sort of nerve wracking experience and the lying awake at night praying that you got the part that's that was me you know praying please God, as if that's the only time I would ever talk to God was like, please, you know, I want this part or please no turbulence on the airplane, but not no other times. But the casting director, even at a young age, I'm talking 11, 12, at my final audition for this, this after school special that I did end up booking, um, I looked at the casting director and I thought, well, she seems to really be having a fun job because it's social. She's making this very uncomfortable situation fun for us. I have a photographic memory. Um, I love the minutia of yeah. who plays to and what Broadway shows. So I was the kid reading John Simon reviews in New York Magazine and and had a collection of playbills and twofers, we called them, which is how you got half price tickets. And I knew who was replacing who and in all the Neil Simon plays. So my brain was sort of wired more on that end than the actual acting. And the truth is, I think I was like a one trick pony. Like I was like funny with glasses. And so those, that was kind of the limitation of my acting. I wasn't very good, okay. I don't think. So the casting <laughs> director seemed like, and I, and we would make jokes at theater camp. My, my best friend, Wendy Pryor, who's now Wendy Pryor Fentress, we would say like, when we're older, we're going to have Pryor Rudin casting. And we were pretty sure that that's, and she's still in entertainment and pursuing her acting career. And, um, and I had gender and casting. So it was something I, I thought would be really fun. And also I just didn't love the auditions. And, and by the time I got to high school, I was more interested in like pro choice. Cause this was like 1989 with the mm-hmm. rallies and interested in more sort of social action and political stuff. And so I quit my acting career to um, to go to University of Wisconsin and do a, a real regular college experience. And when I got to Madison, Wisconsin, I was living in the in-state dorms with all the Minnesota and Wisconsin um, girls. And here I was this like 
sort of bitter New York ex-child actor, you know, running around, moving quickly. And they were, they just thought, I, I don't know what they thought. I mean, I met some of my great friends on the dorm floor, but I learned that the rest of the world is more than just New York. And certainly um, I, I wrote scathing theater reviews for the, universe, for the Badger Herald in Madison. And I would send them back to my mother, scathing, critiquing the, the, these poor, like, MFA acting students, and my mother would say, you know, you're not Frank Rich, it's the university. <laughs> and that's when I interned for Meg Simon and Marcia Schulman. So I went okay. back during my summers, and Meg Simon was, and Donna Morong, um, who was on this program and is my one of my mentors, also worked for Meg Simon. Uh, Simon and Cumin was a huge casting office in the 80s. They did all the Neil Simon plays and August Wilson, and, and Meg had just... Um, been on her own off of uh, Fran, I think, shifted careers. So I was Meg's intern, and um, it was the summer in between my sophomore and junior year of college. And, you know, interning, I mean, I got to say, sitting on the floor filing those pictures and being able to witness and observe Meg in action was, uh, you can't, you know, you can't pay for that type of education. Um, and then the summer before my final year of college, Marsha Schulman, who ended up being head of Fox FBC mm -hmm. casting for many years. She, uh, I was assisting her and um, I remember her saying to me, you know, you, you can't be talk casting, it's about your taste and casting's about having an opinion. Um, Meg Simon had said that she could tell in the first 10 minutes or 10 seconds when an actor walked into the room whether or not they might get the part. Um, and then Heidi Griffiths, who was Meg's associate at the time, who's head of the public theater casting now with Jordan Thaler, she said to me, casting's about timing. So, you know, I sort of learned from these women what it means to have taste and not just make it casting less, but what, what is casting since it can't really be taught. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so that's who I, I worked for. And then I finished Wisconsin and, um, and I came back to New York and I actually worked for my manager. I worked for Gene Fox. And there I was, the receptionist, getting the casting breakdowns. And I was sort of jealous of both the casting directors who had released them because at the time everything was hard copy and, and kind of missed maybe auditioning. So I decided to try auditioning again for a few years in my 20s. And it was just kind of a train wreck because I had to temp to make money. So I was teaching Hebrew school and I was making espresso at Barnes and Noble and I was the cat in the hat at Macy's um, <laughs> during Christmas season in 1995. I was in the parade too um, in 1995 and I was cobbling together, you know, bits and pieces of money to go on auditions. And I had an agent because she knew me when I was younger and I was kind of blowing every audition I had because I just wasn't putting in the preparation or I would be sitting at a temp job like at Citibank making like 20 bucks an hour and I would run off to a commercial audition, take a taxi I couldn't afford, you know, try to put on some makeup and I'd get to these commercial auditions and all these like other blonde women were like looking fabulous and I was mm -hmm. like disheveled. So I really didn't want to do it and I wasn't putting in the work and so I just, I threw out my headshots and, and, and decided to send out some casting letters and, and get a job again. Well, and you've got a really great uh, small little chapter uh, snippet on the end of your acting career of uh, crawling on your Sylvia audition. Yeah. So uh -huh. Stephanie, 
Stephanie Clapper is a, is, a, is a friend and a great casting director here in New York. And she brought me in for the Capitol Rep in Albany production of Sylvia, the Air Gurney play that Sarah Jessica Parker had originated the role. And I think Sylvia's a labradoodle. And so like I'm crawling around on like the dusty floor and I hadn't done any, I didn't know my lines. I didn't know the scene. I was, I think I was barking. And I just saw out of the corner of my eyes, Stephanie and the director looking really just, it was just so pathetic. And I realized, that I had ruined, I had taken up an audition slot, a precious audition appointment, mm. and I hadn't done my work, and I realized that Stephanie had given me a time, and I had not made her proud, and, and part of being, you know, part of being a good actor is relationships with casting directors and doing a good job, so even if they don't cast you for that, they want to see you again, and and I just left, and, and Stephanie and I laughed about it years later, and I don't know if she remembers, but um, but I do, and that's when I was like, I'm done, you know, I don't want to do the work, and I don't have much in me to to give, so I'm good. And sure. I don't think you can make that switch. I think every actor, if you're going to not act anymore, you have to have a like a come to Jesus moment like that, um, where you go, you know what, I'm good. Because if you still want to pursue your acting and your work, you can't work in casting at all. It's too, it's too conflicting. But if you if you have that moment, you'll know, like, oh, okay, I'm I'm good. I'm gonna go to law school. Um, another child actor friend of mine, Romy Corliss, and I'll make sure she hears this. We were child actors together. And she like went to McGill University and her moment was she was crawling around on the floor being a bunny rabbit or something in an acting class. And she just thought, you know what, I'm good. And she went to Columbia Law School and she's an attorney. Like, it's, so mm -hmm. it's like, you know, it's like you have those moments and you go, I'm, I'm done. So animal exercises always <laughs> turn people off of acting. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Well, because I think that's the most like actory thing. Like be it certainly is. Person. And like, if you're not fully into it and you don't want to do it, then you're mm -hmm. not going to do it. And so, you know, you can't be restrained if you're an actor, you have to just, and, and I know this from casting animation because I've, I've asked some incredible actors oh, yeah. to, to do animal noises or sounds at the end of their audition for an animated movie. And some of them are great. Some of them just say, I, it's not in my arsenal. Uh -huh. it, it, it sounds like. <laughs> it sounds like quite a journey that you've been on to get to where you're at, but all of the things that you have, have done contribute mm -hmm. to what it is that you do now. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that's fascinating. But I want to talk a little bit about mentors because you, you, you mentioned Ms. Shulman, you mentioned Meg Simon, uh, and you mentioned Donna Morong being all of these mentors. I ask this question time and time again, but I, I really do think it's important. Uh, and, and I think I get a different answer every time from people. So um, how important have those mentorships been and what doors do you think uh, opened that may not have been opened otherwise? Sure. So I think, you know, as Shonda Rhimes says in her masterclass about writing for television, you can't ask somebody to be your mentor because you just can't. A mentor is sort of revealed to you, whether it's through work or some other way. So um, I certainly call all three of those women mentors, um, Marsha and Meg, because I interned for them and how sat for them and, you know, got to, they brought me to the theater and all those exciting things that happen when you're a college student and you're interning for, for somebody who's great. And also they're women and just fantastic role models. Don Morong was my acting teacher in from like seventh grade on. She ran these small classes for some of the clients of, of Jean Fox. And so I was in her Meisner classes at like 12, 13, trying again to do the work. And um, 
and Donna was tough, you know, cause she, I think I just gotten a swatch or something for my birthday. And I, I was like looking at it the whole time during class and she was like, Jennifer, stop looking at your watch and do the work. But Donna years. So, so I took a few years with Donna and then I heard from my manager that she went off to work at the Walt Disney company and got mm -hmm. this huge job in the feature casting department. So cut to from 1988, the last time I saw her to, um, 2002 when I was considering taking some meetings out in LA it was after 9-11 and I was going to take all my great New York Times reviews for the shows I'd cast in Ensemble Studio Theater and try to see if I could um, you know meet some people in LA to possibly think about moving out there and I called because this is of course you called I called I found a Donna Morong who used to be Donna Jacobson that was her maiden name that she was at Disney and I thought well that must be the same Donna what are the chances so I left a voicemail on her office answering machine and literally the next day she called me and she said Jen it's Donna how are hmm. you 14 so, years later yeah so she remembered me and she knew I'd been working in casting and I told her I was coming out for some meetings and she said, well, of course we'll meet and you'll meet my, my children and you'll come to the studio. And then I think about a day later, she called me back and said, there's actually a position open in the feature animation casting department at Disney. And I faxed, faxed over your resume. And so Donna faxed over my resume. I fly to LA in the summer of 2002. I have no money, by the way. I'm, I'm working for, I don't know, 500 a week or something, or I'm freelancing at this point um, and spending most of my money on rent. And my father gifted me some miles on American Airlines, gave me a free ticket to have some meetings. Uh, so I started to set up all these meetings, including the meeting on the Disney animation job. Um, but of course, I was a New Yorker who had a driver's license from Wisconsin, but did not, not, not know how to drive at all. And my father, wonderful Rabbi A. James Rudin, uh, said, uh, look, you can't rent a car. You don't know what you're doing. I'm going to set up car service. This is in 2002, long before Lyft and Uber. And you'll, you will pay me back. You'll pay me back. I'm going to set up car service and you're going to take a car to your meetings. And I said, that's ridiculous. I'm not a princess. I will drive. And he said, no, you don't understand Los Angeles and you don't understand. It's not going to be cute if you're a New Yorker and you show up late. So just trust me. So he gave me the phone number and I did car service for like 10 days of meetings. And when I did get that Disney feature animation casting job and they relocated me and they moved me out to Los Angeles, uh, as soon as I was up and running, I paid my dad back. So, you know, those are major lessons. Um, and Donna was just across the lot and we, you know, we would have lunch and I would house sit and take care of her animals and her kids and we're still really close friends today. So, um, so yeah, I think mentors can really help you and open up doors, but I think you, you have to be open. You can't be searching for a mentor. You have to mm. set up these internships or, um, you know, assistant jobs. And then you sort of see who, takes who you you vibe with and i i know i'm a mentor for numerous young young folks that have come up through my office or uh through my internship at, i had interns at disney and and it's it's nice you know when you're a men someone's mentor you're writing them reference letters and and then i've got mentors who are you know writing me reference letters so yeah yeah i mean i i think it's it's a hard relationship to get to the point where you can establish it because because i agree with you i think it's it's not something you can just go hey will you be my mentor mm -hmm. it's like when, are you my mother that chicken book or whatever mm -hmm, that, exactly. the ducklings yeah i mean it's like you can't it it just evolves naturally and um 
and I have mentors. I've got new mentors now, and I've also got, you know, people that still look to me, younger women that have interned in my office that, that look to me for advice. And some of the women I've mentored are now, you know, way moving up in the ranks and, and, and various areas of show business. And that's really exciting to see. When you see the people who are kind of, of your ilk, yeah, like I'm going to be working for some of them soon, you know, That's cool. and you know, I still see Meg at, at, at all kinds of things in New York, whether it's the theater or showcases and, and when she was at Warner Brothers and I was at Disney, we would, you know, be at Sundance together or see each other for dinner and, you know, and it's really nice because she, she knows that my, she's had a gazillion interns and she knows that, that I was one of them that chose to, chose a career in casting and, and that does reflect off of, you know, those early days in her office. Um, yeah. So, well, speaking of early days, uh, let's take this opportunity to transition a little bit and talk a little bit about some of your films. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> and uh, even though it's not your first, I want to talk about Kill the Poor. Oh, gosh. Okay. Oh, gosh. It is, <laughs> it is the second film that you cast, um, at least according to IMDb. I have to preface all of that with uh, sometimes IMDb is not correct on things. But it's directed by Alan Taylor, who went on to direct the, the one of the Thor movies and Terminator Genesis and a bunch of TV. Uh, it stars David Crumholtz, Fisher Stevens, Heather Burns, and a few other faces you would recognize. Starting off as a casting director, we'll, we'll ask. I guess we'll ask kind of the, the straightforward question first with this one is how did you land this job. Sure. So um, I, at the time, was was Susan Shotmaker's casting associate, um, mm -hmm. and she's a really cool, cool casting director who does a ton of really great independent movies. And so at the time, her company, we had lots of commercial business. So most of the time, most of the days I was in the studio running commercial sessions, we did the, the Can You Hear Me Now Verizon campaign and hundreds of commercials. And then she, she took on some really interesting um, indie films. And so that was one of them that I worked on with her. And I think that was my first um, casting director, shared casting director credit with her. And, you know, it was, um, it was right. Uh, I have to say 9-11 happened um, in the middle of our casting process. And Alan Taylor was at the time really busy with Sex and the City. He was busy directing those episodes. Mm -hmm. This was the first movie. Um, Indigent was the producer, independent digital uh, entertainment, I think it was called. Gary Winnick and Jonathan Shoemaker, uh, who's a very good friend of mine and is a, is a fantastic producer who works on a bunch of Marvel shows now. He was the uh, one, I think the line producer, the producer. And so he, that's another friendship I formed back in 2001 and we're still friends today. And it was the first movie, I think, to be filmed in New York after 9-11. Um, and it was an interesting process because we were doing all these auditions and then 9-11 happened. And at the time we were casting Kill the Poor and I was in the middle of a big suave hair commercial. And so once the world started up again, uh, maybe by Friday, September 14th or the following week, we went back into the casting room. So it was, you know, it was a dark, dark, dark film and a really dark time to, um, to be in New York, and I think it went to the it went to the Tribeca Film Festival because I remember coming back from LA. I moved to LA in two thousand two. Mm -hmm. I came back, and it was screening there. And um, yeah, I mean, it's a cool movie when you look at the cast, but that's you know that's because those were the right actors for the role. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, that so was cool. That kind of being one of your first. Do you have any advice for people out there who are kind of looking to land their first feature? or trying to get off their first big project and just haven't gotten to that point yet? 
Yeah, the um, it really is about connections. Um, I probably get five emails a week or five a day sometimes for first time directors or NYU grad students looking for a casting director for their short film or their thesis. And that's the opportunity where, you know, some of those folks might be the next Spielberg, some of them may not be. Um, that's a really good opportunity for a young casting associate or somebody who's been working for somebody else to really get their own movie. Um, it's to say, okay, I, I'll do your movie for very little money or whatever it's going to be and, uh, and go for it. So I think it's, but you can also take that risk and be in like a total um, nightmare of a situation where they don't have their funding or they, you know, they aren't organized. So, you know, it just depends. You've got to meet those young directors, those up and coming directors and make those connections. Most of the time now when those come to me, I usually send everybody <clears throat> to the Casting Society of America and I say, you know, go post your job okay. there and you'll find somebody who's young, younger, young and hungrier than I am. Um, mm -hmm. And they'll happily do your movie um, because sometimes those relationships can be the ones that go on and on and on for years as the director moves up they will will or will not take you with them. I mean, that's what's tricky about being in casting. You know, you can do a movie for somebody and then think and hope that they're going to take you to the next one and they may or may not. Mm -hmm. So um, best case scenario is you you meet, you know, A.V. Kaufman and Ang Lee, you know, she's his casting director. Or Spike Lee has his casting directors. But sometimes, um, you know, you do one for, I did Peter Bogdanovich's movie and, and I, I'm not sure if he did another one after, but that was sort of, you know, could it, if he does more, I'd love to be part of them, but you just can't guarantee that unless you try to put something in writing. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so let's talk about another one that you did. This was while well, uh, during your stint at Disney, uh, The Incredibles. Ah, yeah. An incredible movie. Um, <laughs> it, it is, it is really like one of the first, of those animated movies, you know, that wasn't the toy stories that really kind of started the whole 3D animation stuff. But that I feel like it's one of the early ones that had some bigger names in it mm -hmm. as the characters. I also want to note that Brad Bird, who directed, voiced Edna Mode, which I had no clue that was Brad Bird. It is my favorite character, one of my favorite animated characters of all time is Edna, and he is wonderful as that character. Um, but what I was wondering when I was rewatching this as a casting director, when you're sitting there and you're, you're reading these animated scripts, are you seeing in your head the characters and the actors that could, because it's voice and because these characters are animated, there's this squaring thing that I can't, that I can't put in my mind of how, when you're reading that script, who you're thinking, oh, this could be Craig T. Nelson or this should be Holly Hunter, or, or what have you. Yeah, so um, animation's a whole different ball game, and I'll share one story that might help everybody understand how we cast voices. So um, after The Incredibles, I worked on a movie called The Wild, I actually worked on it with Corbin Bronson, and Avon, I think, I think we shared billing, which was exciting for him, and, and um, the right thing to do, because he worked really hard on it. And uh, so I was in the car with my father and we had an offer out to somebody for the squirrel. And I remember I was on the phone with the agent of the actor and I said, my father, I think was driving the car. I said, he's just not the right, he's just not the right voice to come out of the skull of the animal. 
So it's not going to happen. And my father said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, you have to understand, you know, we're, we're taking the, we're, we're cutting to picture the voice of an actor, either through their audition or, you know, a sample of them on an interview or a sample of them from another movie. Way back then you were actually making MP3 clips from different movies, different DVDs we had in the office. That's how hard the work was. Yeah, it was a full-time job to, to pull yeah. those, pull voices. And you're cutting them against pictures. So you've got the animated character, whether it's just a, a piece of artwork or it's early visual development where the, um, you know, it's black and white and the character is, is storyboard form. And so he's sort of moving maybe. And then you close your eyes and then you listen to the voice and then you cut three voices to picture and you sort of vote and see who's the right voice, who's the most believable voice to come out of the skull of that animal. And that's kind of how I always view it. Um, if it's not an animal and it's just a character, you know, is that the right voice to come out of that character, uh, of that animation? Um, and also, who is the squirrel talking to in the scene? So in the wild, the squirrel ended up being voiced by Jim Belushi. The koala bear was Eddie Izzard. The snake was George Carlin. The giraffe was Janine Garofalo. And they all were in these scenes together. And so I had to make sure that George Carlin didn't sound like Eddie Izzard, didn't sound like Jim Belushi. And they all didn't. They all sounded very different. Mm -hmm. A recent animated movie I worked on called Rock Dog, we had Luke Wilson, J.K. Simmons, um, Kenan Thompson, Lewis Black. Well, if you take all those voices, and you and Mae Whitman, if you, who I love from Parenthood, this is my favorite mm -hmm. show. Yeah. Um, and I'm obsessed with all Jason Caden's shows. So anyway, it's out there. We cut all those voices to picture, and they sound like they're having conversation together. So a lot of what you're doing in casting also is to make sure that the two voices don't sound too similar if they're in dialogue together. And because you're so rarely recording voice actors together, you, you have to do it yourself in the edit room. We did, for Chicken Little, record um, my friend Zach Braff with Gary Marshall. That was a couple of times they recorded because Gary played Chicken Little's father, but that's such a rare time. We, we recorded Luke Wilson for Rock Dog with, with J.K. Simmons and Sam Elliott and Eddie Izzard, but that was just like on a one day where everybody could make it over there to LA studios. It's very rare. So, so that's the stuff that you're dealing with. So it's like, is that the right voice to come out of that animal? Is that the right texture? Is that the right tone, the right accent? And who are they talking to in the rest of the scene so that nobody is, so that nobody's confused? Um, and even I think young kids going to animated movies, you know, they can tell that that's the villain and that's the this and she's the princess and everybody sounds different. So that's part of the casting process. Now with The Incredibles, by the time I arrived to Disney, Disney and Pixar were still doing their casting together where I worked with Kevin Rear up at um, Pixar. The, the main role we had to focus on was Dash, uh, the boy. And so um, here Dash? I... Well, because they had they had searched for boys in San Francisco and um, in LA, and they hadn't found him yet. And so I um, I um, show up to Burbank with all of my theater knowledge and my love for New York, and I said to them, you know what? I, I let's let's tap into the New York talent pool. Um, remember, this is before people are sending in MP3s. This is when an agency might send yeah. you a CD to listen to. So um, I think I went to New York early on and um, auditioned a bunch of my favorite, favorite young actors, you know, kids I'd known uh, who were now the right age. And Spencer Fox, who voiced Dash, was just one of these smart kids that I knew. And he 
came in and he was truly, he was Dash. And we got him at the time, Bonnie Shamovsky, um, my very good friend who's his voice agent, we got him at the right time. So he was able to voice all of Dash plus all of the ancillary products. His voice didn't change. And years later, he came into audition for me during pilot season. He was in college and I said, I don't know if you remember me. And he's like, oh my God, of course I remember you. It was the biggest deal. And so he has a quote in my book about yeah. what it was like. And so that's, that's like a great, you know, it's just, we tapped into the New York talent pool. Um, I was sure, maybe I was a little snobby and biased being a New Yorker. I was pretty sure that we would find the kid in New York because he's a spunk and grit and the texture in his voice and, and, and that fast paced and all those energy, the dashes. And there you go. So, um, so that's a, you know, that's a good audition story. Now, of course, everyone's always tapping into all the markets because everything's digital and technology has made it happen that you can gather MP3s from all over the world for these roles. But back then, we really had to show up, hit record on the CD, bring the CDs back with us to LA and play them, play the CDs for our executives, um, cut to picture, so. That was an early job for him too, right? As dad. Yeah, I mean, I think he'd done, I, I think he'd done some commercials and stuff, um, but this was a really big break for him. And he said, you know, getting to go to Pixar and like, you know, that was, the, it was a total thrill and it's a really nice family and his manager and agent are, are friends um, of mine. And, you know, that's a, that's a great story. It's, it's also a good, I'm a big advocate of casting real young actors for those roles. So Dash, you know, the fact that we had an actual boy voicing the role, I'm not a fan of 30 year old grown up women voicing down. I, I hate when I hear a woman pretending to be a boy. Now it can work a lot because, um, if it's an if it's an animated series and it goes going on and on and on and on for years, obviously you're going to go into that horrible thing where the boy's voice changes and you have uh -huh. to search for a new one. So Meet the Robinsons is an example on that animated movie. We found two great boys. They were in LA. We found them. We started recording them for temp recording. Then we converted their contracts over and and then of course they both, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14, their voices started to change. And I can't remember how it turned out. If we, we, we turned it up, we dialed it down, we tried to recast, we, we finally, you know, I think they made it work with those two original boys, but you know, that's what happens, you know? So with kids roles, I always say, wait until you're really ready to get into that production recording studio and you're really finalized on your dialogue because uh -huh. it's heartbreaking if you start casting the boy too soon mm -hmm. and then all your pages change and now he what yesterday's nine-year-old is now 13 you're in a and situation where bass voice now and <laughs> yeah and it's uncomfortable for everybody because it's like I can tell when a boy's voice is about to change I can tell when I meet a young actor and I see that their shoe size has gotten that all of a sudden their feet have grown I'm like uh oh it's coming soon mm. you know but you can't like you can't, you know, it's just, but that's, that's what happens. That's, you know, the circle of life, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, and you've been quoted, actually it's in your book. Uh, you say the best part of my job is casting someone in their first big role. Mm -hmm. Why is it that that is so satisfying? I mean, I can, I can guess, but why for you, why is that so satisfying? Yeah, I think it's because, um, you know, we're always meeting new actors and I, and I really have my, my eye on, I know every child actor in New York City, the tri-state area. I'm oftentimes 
hired just to do kids casting on on projects um almost been pigeonholed sometimes into just being that person that you go to because I, I love working with kids and I know them all and I've watched them grow so it's really exciting if you've had your eye on somebody like they're seven and you you you're, you meet them when they're seven and their sister comes into audition for you but you're like who are you and it's the little brother yeah. that happened recently with somebody and I had my eye on him and the next thing you know my instinct we talk about instinct um and sort of having that gut feeling about somebody um that's that's really thrilling when they do come in and they they're ready to book something um and you you feel you're proud that you that you knew this young person when they when they first got their you know their big start um there's a girl mama this um guillermo del toro executive produced this movie and mm -hmm. machete directed and it was a, it was a fun search because i had to find the five-year-old version of the nine-year-old girl and it was filming up in Canada and they'd seen every girl in Canada. And so they put me on for the New York search and, and I had the picture of the young actress and then in walks this five-year-old with the same green eyes, the same blonde hair, the same round face. And, you know, and she got the part and I got to call her um, manager right before Thanksgiving of 2011, Morgan McGarry. She's in the, the first chapter or the introduction of the book. And yeah. she, you know, got to go on a plane and go be in a movie. I mean, and then a friend of mine said, oh, she's only five, you know, like I was like, I made her dreams come true. My friend was like, yeah, but she's only five. I'm like, I know, but still, you know, and so we're forever bonded. And now this young actor is just 12. And every time we see each other, it's this nice, you know, hug because we, we were part of something together. Yeah. You know, and, and that's, those are the good, those are the good casting days, you know, which is important to focus on the good stuff. But, but keep in mind that, you know, it's not always it's not always a happy yeah, phone call and, yeah and not at all at all yeah um so you know what let's go into your book let's okay. talk a little bit about your book because uh i got through it uh a couple days ago um i really really enjoyed it came out five years ago like we said like you said a little bit earlier there's a, a live stream that you did earlier today that I'm sure people will be able to find somewhere on the internet. Yeah, I think you can go to Jen Rudin Casting's page on Facebook. It, it lives okay. there. Um, and, and we'll have a link in our show notes. Yeah, I'll we'll send you a link to that. Yep, and it's interesting because um, the book, you know, I, I will reread it at times when I'm teaching a class or, you know, I was teaching at Syracuse University. I was teaching the on-camera portion to the theater students this fall. And I still believe in everything I say in the book. It still rings true. So, um, well, I mean, you, and you cover everything from the, the early portion of your career and your transition into casting, but you cover headshots, you cover agents and managers, advice to stage moms, uh, you know, moving to Los Angeles or New York city. It really is a comprehensive guide. Um, and then you have this really lovely forward from Janine Garoppolo. Uh, who I adore. I think she's my favorite actress. <laughs> Me too. And she says in talking about your book, do what Jen says. Do everything in your power to optimize your chances for success because it's a large school of fish out there and they all really want to be caught. Regrettably, show business is not a meritocracy. Act like it is. Mm -hmm. um, and I love this quote. I, I love that it helps to start off this book. Um, and because you have so many wonderful tips and tricks and breakdowns, we'll start with the normal question of, why was it that you wrote this book? What was sure. what was inside of you that you had to put it down into a book? 
So I've always been a writer. I've been keeping diaries since I was six and um, inspired a lot by Anne Frank and uh, not to go into a dark and dark conversation, but I'm really about writing. And, 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 yeah. and so what happened is I was at Disney. I was on staff. I was a casting executive and very busy going to Sundance and, and going, um, you know, lunches. And then when I when I moved, Disney moved me back to New York in 2007 to oversee the casting for the Broadway division. And one of my jobs, one of my many jobs was to um, to find kids for Mary Poppins on Broadway because we had three sets of, of, of Jane and Michael Banks and also to find the new Ariel for The Little Mermaid, which had just mm. opened on Broadway. And so I went around the country, it was January, 2009, and I had a 10 city uh, itinerary of doing open calls in all these 10 cities to find this this new um, Ariel who could sing, you know, part of your world and who could dance and, and had the proper movement for the healing that was necessary and happening in the show. While I was in these 10 cities, I saw so many mistakes in the auditions from these young women. There were 600 women that showed up in my 10 cities, depending on the city, and I had no time to give any of them feedback. You know, we were doing open calls. They would sing a, a, a quick cut of their song. If, if they could hit the note, I'd ask them to stay and maybe sing part of your world and do some acting scenes. And most of the adjustments I wanted to give were very simple ones. So I started keeping a notebook like, that's not the right song cut to show your competitive money notes. If you only have eight bars or 16 bars to sing, don't choose the beginning part of the song that's the boring intro. Choose the climactic, you know, chorus of the song or the um, the bridge of the song. Mm -hmm. So there was that. There was, you know, what, do you, what should I wear? I mean, a lot of my stuff was wardrobe-based in the beginning. I'm a very visual person, so I would see these women come in, and the dress they were wearing might not flatter them to the best of their um, abilities. And so what are the colors to be wearing? What kind of shoes? And so I started keeping all these notes. And when I, and I did find the girl that, that, you know, went into the Broadway company. I found her in Cincinnati, um, Megan Campanile, and we became friends and her photos in the book. And anyway, she, uh, so this trip was a success. And I went to talk to my boss, Tom Schumacher, who's president of Disney Theatrical Productions, and again, a mentor of mine. And I said, Tom, you know, he had just written a book called uh, about theater for children. And I said, Tom, I, I, I just want to write this book. I've taken all these notes. It's, it's audition tips and tricks. And I think it's called, I think it's called, um, uh, it had all these like Mary Poppins references, like um, keep moving forward or, you know, uh, it had terrible titles. And I said, I've got to write the stories. And he said, Jen, you absolutely must write the book. Best Foot Forward, I think it was called. You must write the book. Um, these are your stories from your times in the audition room. Um, you must write the book. I, I, I give you permission. Make sure that Disney is presented in a positive light, uh, as it always is. Every time I went to do any um, auditions for the company to make sure that everybody has a positive experience um, at their audition. So even if I gave cut them, at least would say, keep studying with your voice teacher, keep trying to hit that E flat or whatever that note was. So Tom gave me that permission and I started writing chapters and I started making notes and I started my files and this was 2009. So the economy collapsed and a bunch of us got laid off, dissolved. And the next day I opened up Jen Rudin Casting and I was way too busy to be even thinking about my book. And then on my 40th birthday, my now husband took me to Italy and I said to him, God, Andy, you know, I've got these voices in my head. I've got to write this. I've got to write the book. And I, I, I guess I'll self-publish because that's what's happening. And um, I've got these chapters and I'm ready to go. And through um, a connection, I had uh, an, an introduction to... Um, Lisa Sharkey at HarperCollins, who's a, a very dear friend of mine now, another mentor, and um, 
I had a meeting with her and um, I was sure she was going to tell me to self-publish and she was reading a really old proposal from 2009. I think I maybe went into my computer and like redid some things before the meeting. And she, um, she said, I want you to rewrite this proposal. I want you to read How to Write a Book Proposal by Michael Larson. Uh, and I want to see a new proposal. Um, so she left the door open. So I worked th so hard on this new proposal. And I'm sharing all of this because after my book came out, a thousand people said to me, I want to write a book too. I want to write a book. And I said, really? Okay. It's a lot of work and you have to do a book proposal and you've got to spend hours in the library. Um, and you don't just, it's not just, it's not easy. Mm -hmm. So, um, I wrote sample chapters and I, um, really polished my proposal, which included a lot of stuff about Twitter followers and, you know, who is your audience and who's going to be reading this book since it's nonfiction, sample chapters. Um, and I think Lisa was testing to see if I had the writing skills to actually write it or did I need to have a ghostwriter. And I am telling you, the day I saw the email that told me that HarperCollins was going to publish my book was like better than any, it was equal to the day I found out that I was going to move to LA and work for Disney. I mean, it was one of those moments, you know, you don't yeah. forget that moment um, when you get this news. And so um, the, the irony is that the book was due April 15th, 2013. And my father, Rabbi Rudin was also writing a book um, for his publisher uh, about Rabbi Stephen Wise that was also due April 1st. And there we are writing our books together, the New York Society Library, which is where Lillian Hellman and Wendy Wasserstein have written their plays. Uh -huh. And we're sitting there, we're writing our books, we would meet for lunch, we're writing our books. And then my poor father went to have a stent put in and literally ended up having to have triple bypass surgery. And so um, he's in the hospital having triple bypass and I'm writing my book a couple blocks away at the library. And He's in the ICU recovering and says to me with one droopy eye, go back to the library, finish your book, finish your book. Don't get, you're not, you don't need an extension. I'm not dying, you know, finish the book. And so I finished the book and got it in on time. Of course, he had sent his editor his draft before the triple bypass because that's us. We're rudens, like we're hard workers. <laughs> Get it done. So the book comes out, and um, and I think Broadway World did an article, an interview with me, and I was talking about it. My dad is like in the hospital, and I'm finishing the book, and you know I'm worried about him. And the women at Harper Collins, my editor Paige Hazan and, and Lisa Sharkey, who's one of the heads of Harper Collins, says, you know, why didn't you tell us? Like we would have given you an extension. Like we didn't know your dad was in the hospital. I'm like, nope, I'm a professional. Like book was due. Get it in. Deadlines are important. So when the book came out, it was it was truly a joy. It's like it's like um, I have stepdaughters, grown stepdaughters. I don't have kids of my own, and you know, I said to my husband, Andy, it's like my child, this is my baby. And he's like, well, it is, except that, you know, it doesn't like need to be fed and like <laughs> the diapers don't need to be changed. And, but that's how I feel about it. And I'm really proud. So it's, it's, and I wrote it for the actors. That's the thing. Yeah. It's because when you see actors making these small mistakes and you know that with just some good advice that they can give a better audition, it's like a gift. It's like, it's not that hard. It's just, if you walk in with, you know, there's these YouTube videos that HarperCollins made, these, these promo videos about what not to do at the audition. And you can Google on YouTube, you know, Jen Rudin Confessions of a Caster Audition Do's and Don'ts. And it's like, if you walk in and you're like bringing in like the baggage of the day with like the, the, the craziness of the subway and you, you, you haven't read the script and you're, you know, you're unkempt. It's like, 
we see that in the audition room and we can't endorse you to then get the part and go to set if you can't yeah. follow simple directions in our audition room. So all of those stories are in there as well as epic audition fails and successes, which is something that Lisa came up with in terms of you know, wanting to hear from actors. So I gathered from actors like all these great audition stories, <laughs> highs and lows, goods and bads, and my mm -hmm. editor Paige, who, um, you know, she said she was laughing out loud reading some of these stories, it was so hard to choose. So they are sprinkled throughout the book, along with right. ask, ask the agent corner or ask the photographer. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like a fun read. So it's not, it's it not really like, a, is. it's fun. And it's something you can, you can sort of keep in your bag and sort of, I, I meet actors who have all kinds of stickies, you know, showing that they're actually reading and rereading the book. And my sister, who is also a rabbi, <clears throat> like my father, Rabbi Evrun, she had an audition um, to play the rabbi on Younger. And she actually booked the part um, Sutton Foster show in season one. Hmm. she had an audition to go in and, and, you know, and she said she read, she reread a couple of the chapters too. So she's like, I showed up early, Jen. I left my booth on the <laughs> side. I had, I didn't bother people in the waiting room. I was very concentrated and, you know, she got the part, she got the part cause she's great. And she, you know, she, she is a real rabbi and they were looking for that. But I think you can use that, that advice for any job interview that you're having or any time you're trying to make a good, first impression, um, you know, you, you have one chance to go in there and, and meet us and make a good first impression. And if you're a nine-year-old child and you're having a bad day, I get it. And I, mm -hmm. I'll give you a second chance but with adult actors. You may not get that second chance. Yeah. So you got to well, do your you best. You have a bad day and you're on set. You still got to do the job. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You, you show up on set and it's a bad day and your, your dog died at home and whatever happened. You still got to show up and emote. You still got to show up and do the job because there are hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars on the line. Yeah. They're riding on you being able to execute what you need to execute. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. And like things happen, you know, things happen. Like trains get delayed and mm -hmm. migraine headaches happen. And, you know, you, not everybody can go in there and be perfect all the time, but you can at least do your best to try to be prepared and and be be early, not too early, and you know, and really, just it's a job interview. The the, the challenge is that it's always a, every day is a job interview. You know, you can go on thousands of auditions and not get any. Versus if you're a banker or an insurance agent, and you go on a job interview, you get the job, and then you get mm -hmm. to go to work. So it's it's very it's very different. My my father and my brother-in-law's rabbi, that's the theme here, they went on an audition for, the, um, for Boardwalk Empire. They needed a, a rabbi. And so I sent my brother-in-law and my father, I coached my father, and they go to Meredith Tucker's office. And Julie Schubert, who's a huge casting director of House of Cards and Daredevil, was, was the associate at the time. So I, I bring my dad and, you know, does his audition, and my brother-in-law does his audition. And they both walked out and said, God, you know, how can you do that every day? How do actors do that? How do they grind out? every day and nobody's paying me. And then of course my father being, being so not a stage father or anything, so he's like, what's going on? Did I get the role? Can you get the feedback? You know, should I go back to Florida? What's the deal? And so I'm like emailing Julie Schubert for, for feedback. And she says to me, like, we went in a different direction. Like we want somebody to look more like a rabbi, like more like 1920s rabbi. Mm -hmm. So even my father from one audition was like, what's going on? Like, did I get the part? You know, you can't, you get so excited with the possibility yeah, of the promise of like, it's such an exciting business. Otherwise we wouldn't be doing it. 
but it's also heartbreaking. There's a lot of really good stuff in the book. Uh, I, I highly recommend people checking it out. There's actually one chapter, um, and I know we're getting close to time with you, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I do have a couple more questions if you have time for that. Mm-hmm. I don't know what your schedule is. Um, one of the chapters you have on agents and managers, uh, and I bring it up because it's a question that uh, comes up a lot. Um, one that I've actually kind of avoided on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's a lot of people who are, it's just a lot of times it's the same sort of answers that you're going to get. And I'm going to avoid it now because there are answers to that in the book. But what, uh, what I am curious about from that is the casting director, agent manager relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've got a two part question with this one and it's how, how, are your relationships with agents and managers? Like, do you know a lot of agents and managers? And then how much of those relationships play in whether or not an actor even gets called in or in the grander scheme books the role? Sure, so um, so I always say to people that if the, if the agent is the seller and the casting director is the buyer, that's kind of an easy way to understand that relationship. So the agent represents the actors and they procure work for them and take their 10% commission and they negotiate their contracts and look out for them for their entire career or for a short part of their career until the actor moves on and, you know, leaves them for a bigger agency, which is sad, but happens. And the, um, that's the, the, the agent, the agent and casting director. Uh, first of all, I, it's such a shorthand with so many of them here in New York, cause I've worked with them for 20 years mm-hmm. and, for the guys in LA, I've worked with them since, you know, for 2002, that's almost 20 years too. So these are deep relationships. They're built on lunches, theater dates, trust, phone conversations, at least in the olden days. Um, Now a lot of it is email. It's about, um, uh, I trust you. So the agents, who I trust are the ones that listen to what we need in terms of the casting breakdown that aren't going to waste their my time sending too many people. Um, the agents I love to work with are like the ones that are really uh, organized and confirm their actors um, and and just make and are easy to work with and fun. And oftentimes agents and cast directors do go out to a lot of stuff. We do, agents will invite us to, to join them as their plus one to see their clients in a show um, or we'll go to dinner beforehand. Uh, and mm. some agents, you know, um, some agents are, are friends of mine and some are colleagues and some agents I, I don't know very well. Um, but I do know that the ones I've had, I'm very old school, you know, personal connections with, um, shared a meal with are people that I want to do business with the rest of my life. So, um, so that's the good part about agents. Agents can also be, um, you, you know, we need them. Like they need us, we need them. Like I can't have a casting session unless my actors are confirmed. You know, they're not going to be confirmed unless I have an agent or the agent's assistant that's really on the ball and is administratively organized. So, um, it's a two way, it's, it's a, it's a dynamic that, that, you know, we have to trust them. And they also know when to leave us alone. Like when it's pilot season and you're like, you've got like 60 people a day coming in for auditions. They know not to bother you for feedback. They know, Mm -hmm. you know, because you're getting thousands of submissions, right. Or thousands of people wanting feedback, but they also, um, you know, we need to know the truth from the agents. We need to know if the actor is actually available for the dates that we're, that we're checking on them for. We need to know, did you get them the script? Did you, what is the, and a lot of casting, a lot of what I pride myself on are these sort of detailed 
status reports that um, I've had to do for studios when I'm on casting jobs. And a status report is like the actor, the, the actor's name, the role that we tried to set them up for, the agency, and why they passed on the role or why they didn't make it in for the audition. So I do a lot of stuff for Disney Channel and you know we're constantly making those lists of like the kids couldn't come in. This one's at summer camp and this one's doing this show and this one is here and this one is in Toronto. But the important thing is those details and the agents have to provide those details. Like he's at summer camp, he can't make the audition. Okay, he's out of town until July 5th. Um, he doesn't, you know, he's only looking, he doesn't want to travel um, or she's, passing on, you know, this project because she wants to stay home and be close to her family, like all those reasons and I put them in the status report. So that's the, that, that's what the agents, we need them. Um, ultimately, when the role is cast, we send their names and the deal memo goes to business and legal affairs and they negotiate those contracts and get them on set. But yeah, they're long relationships with agents. They're, they're for years and years. Yeah. Um, and kids agents, especially, I need to know like, well, are they four foot two now? Or are they four foot five? You know, mm -hmm. is the voice changing? Are they like, what, how young are they playing these days? And those kids agents need to be tuned into, you know, to their specialty, which is how the kids change and grow. Yeah. Lastly, uh, I want to hit a, a short film that you actually wrote, uh, you produced, directed by Bertha Besa Pan. Yep, you got it. Did I get it? Oh, fantastic. I love it when I pronounce people's names right. And I'm sure they do too. Um, it stars Zoe Margaret Coletti, Whoopi Goldberg's in there, Catherine Curtin, and Quinn McCulgan. McCoggan. Uh, McCoggan. I almost almost got them all. Um, it's currently on the festival circuit, I believe, so I won't say too much, um, but it's the story of a young autistic girl, Lucy, who has a twin that isn't autistic, and her family, and the struggles of, uh, of life in general, but um, more pointedly, entering high school and how everyone is kind of struggling while simultaneously wanting to do everything to help. Uh, Lucy, yeah. I, I think it's a really beautiful short, um, really tight. Uh, Zoe Margaret was incredible, um, and the family you built around her conveyed so much in, in such a tight little film. Um, you know, the mom and the sandwich moment was heartbreaking. Oh, thank you. Thank um, you. So you went back to school and got your MFA in dramatic writing from NYU <laughs> last I did. Year. Yeah, I did. I um, I sort of kept it on the down low because I was still casting, mm -hmm. so I somehow managed to, I sort of did grad school and did some, I did some big casting projects, um, you know, high, high paying ones, I want to say, you know, big casting projects that I didn't want to yeah. turn down and um, was a TV concentrate. And then I started winning a couple of awards for some of my scripts. And I thought, you know, I'm sort of going to out myself on Facebook and it's okay. People wear many different hats here. So Lucy in the Sky is actually a full TV pilot um, that um, we're starting. Okay. Yeah. So we're starting to shop that around to networks and it's a full series about a teen girl with autism who has a twin sister who's not on the spectrum and Lucy is being mainstreamed into high school. And, um, and so the short film is both a proof of concept for a full series and also a, a standalone short. And I also want to mention um, Danny Burstein, who's, um, yes. you know, a phenomenal actor and Isabella mm -hmm. Russo, um, Lexi Gwynn, Madison Zamore, Kelly Hu, and, uh, and a little Adrian Rayo plays the brother. So it was a great cast and really fun to cast my own project because, um, 
I, everybody sent in self tapes, not, not the adults, obviously those were, those are offers, but um, the kids all sent in self tapes. And here's another example where like, I knew all these young actors from my casting experience and it's amazing. Zoe Coletti, Zoe and Quinn and Isabella, who I've known for, since they were, you know, babies, you know, coming up, uh, are net, we're now the right age, um, the most beautiful age to play these, these um, kids. And so it was sort of a joy to hand pick um, some really amazing young actors. Zoe is uh, in um, uh, Wildlife, Paul Dano's movie. Mm -hmm. She's just finished Scary Stories up in Toronto. Guillermo del Toro's exec producing that. Quinn is here in New York now doing a, a new movie. Quinn's doing a new movie. Adrian's booking a zillion commercials. Isabella Russo uh, just did a pilot for ABC. So it's a, it's a really great group of young actors. And of course, Kathy Curtin's, you know, Insecure, Stranger Things, Orange is the New Black, Danny Burstein is Lee, Moulin Rouge. So okay. I had, uh, and of course, um, Whoopi Goldberg. So it was a truly, and, and Kelly Hu, it was a really fun experience to cast my own movie and um and also negotiating with the agents because now it's like it's like my baby right if the book was my first baby and this is my second baby and you know negotiating with agents um to get actors into your own movie it's like it's 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 even means even more and i'm nominated for an ardios award um for best short film casting and that's the casting society of america ardios awards are uh january i think 31st in la and new york so so we'll see what happens there but um what's interesting is you know i i'm not you know in casting you're not on the set all the time you sort of hire the actors and maybe you go to the set maybe if you've got some time uh -huh. and then you see everybody at the premiere and you hope that the phone doesn't ring that you need to do any recasting so being on set was so interesting especially on my own movie because like wow like lights gonna move why does everything seem to take so long the actors all know what to do they're used to waiting and i'm like looking at my clock going oh my gosh you know, so it's like really fascinating to see the other end of things, you know, what happens when an actor um, goes to the set. And I just want to talk for a second about Quinn and Zoe, because um, these girls who pl are playing fraternal twins, you know, they, they met the first day of shooting. Um, they're, they're both redheads and um, immediately uh, had this bond as sisters. And, you know, we're, we're filming for three days. And, and I loved the way they were able to just they were so. Um, mellow and lovely and the nicest sweetest girls who might be on instagram in between takes but then as soon as those cameras were rolling are right back to work and uh every adult actor who wants to be in film should should look at these these these, these girls and their performances because they're so focused and so consistent and they just i mean i expected nothing less and whoopi goldberg was you know um very impressed with them and uh and they're great and they also um have wonderful mothers and that's a whole thing we didn't talk about maybe for another uh podcast you know wonderful mothers who and same with adrian's mom all the mothers on our set were just ramona and and sarah and christy like lovely parents who let their children go and do their work and just sit back and you know are an advocate for them but also let them you know go beyond set and and leave left them alone and that was great to see too yeah well, so was, lucy in the sky and congratulations on it it seems like more writing is in your future yeah yeah, I think so. I mean, I, um, you know, trying more writing, to more producing, more making things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, they call it pivoting careers, you know, like, <laughs> but I have to say it's like, yeah, you just, you know, but it's like, it's like, I feel like it's stacking, stacking careers anymore. Well, <laughs> but it's like cycling, not pivoting because you know? you're going to probably keep casting. I assume. I, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And the thing is, is, uh, 
it's back to cycling. I mean, we started with cycling, like you got to log hours on your bike, you got to sit, sit on that bike and get up those hills. And it's the same thing with writing. You just sit in the chair. Stephen King talks about mm -hmm. it in this book. No one's going to write the, the darn script for you. Um, no one's going to, no one's going to do the acting work for you as an actor. You have to do it yourself. You got to keep on, you know, moving up the boulder. But, um, but so that's, you know, that's why the book is important for actors because here's some tips to help you do better auditions, be more prepared, and ultimately, you know, hope to get work. Yeah. Well, and I think so. that, that the, the book, when, when you talk about these casting stories and you hear these casting stories, it's, I think it's important to hear those because you don't, like as an actor, you don't get any feedback. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that feedback, you don't know the things that you're doing wrong. You don't know the ideas that you're, if you're going in and you're not smiling or you're not doing this at that time, like you just have no clue. Right. So, and Marcy, Marcy Learoff, who you interviewed, who's, mm -hmm. a, who's a, a colleague of mine. I mean, she said it right. She's like the second, like you walk into the room and five seconds before, like I've just been on the phone, we've lost our funding. The gender's changed on the character. Mm -hmm. um, we can't, you know, I'm answering emails. Like, so when you walk in, when the actor walks into the room, it really does have nothing to do with you because you can come in at, at 10 in the morning and it's a great day. By the time you show up at two o'clock, like we haven't had lunch, the gender's changed five times, mm -hmm. the role's been cut and I haven't had lunch and I'm hungry. And like you walk in and you know, um, it has, you know, the, 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 it's, but as Marcy says, like it's your room and like it's your audition, but you also um, have to know that you're walking into this room and like, a lot of stuff has happened before, stuff's gonna happen after, and you've got these 10 minutes. So you better make them worth it. You better yeah. be good. <laughs> Please well, be good. And I think that that's what's, it's it's so important to be, uh, like you said, keeping your instrument in, in check and tuned, working with uh, an acting coach, or getting in some classes, just stretching and, and working that muscle. It's it's super important. I, I work with Sharon Chatton in, in LA here. Whenever I'm not working, working, I'm with Sharon because mm -hmm. it's just, it's, it's the case of like, you have to, you have to have that outside perspective. That's why a film has a director. Right. Collaboration. Of, a bunch of actors just like figuring it out as they go. You need somebody to be like, no, you, you're not doing, you're not doing what you're intending to do. Well, also, I mean, I do a lot of private audition coaching and, and, mm -hmm. um, do it on zoom that's what i know about zoom and skype and all that yeah. and, you know most of the time it's you know it's a quick half hour it's just to like look at the scene and figure out the tone i mean is it a half hour comedy is it a one hour drama you know what 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 clues in the roadmap of the script are obvious and what clues do you have to dig for in order to just make make choices in your scene you know i'm not i'm not lee strasberg i'm not an acting teacher i'm trying to help you figure out what am i going to do in this audition you know mm -hmm. what 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 is the pacing and most of the time certainly if you can figure out the pacing if you can figure out what your character wants if you can figure out um what you know what the tone is if it's animated if it's half hour if it's you know a drama you, you've already like done some of the work there but then to have some perspective so that you know that you're going and making some choices a choice and whether it's the right or the wrong one you went in with a choice and if you're lucky they'll give you an adjustment and you'll do it again if not, you should walk out and go, I was proud of my choice because I discussed it with my acting coach and I'm good to go. And then, you know, get back in the car and, and you know, I know you uh, rip up your scripts or shred yep. them um, <laughs> or, you know, just, uh, just, you know, call your mother and tell her it went well, you think, you know, or, yeah. or text somebody. So, but get on with your day because yeah. 
you have yeah, to. I liked, I liked what Marcy said of just like, <laughs> set something up right after. Mm-hmm. Go do a thing. Get it out of your head because it's it's so easy, especially early, to just like beat yourself up. I know. To, I like, especially as... your dad, like the yeah. same thing. He, yeah, my father. He, anybody who goes up. in and experiences that, it is it is nerve wracking. It is. Uh, you just think about it all day long, unless you yeah. have something else that can take your mind uh, away from that. Yes, like cycling. So get on your bikes, everybody. There you go. Get on your your Bring literal and figurative bikes. Get I back on it, your man. bike. I love it. <laughs> so I know we didn't get a chance to talk much about the whole photographic memory thing, but bet we will next time. That has got to be handy. Did something we say pique your interest in this episode, but you didn't get a chance to IMDb it or write it down? check out our website, placingfaces.com, for links to everything we talked about in our episode show notes. Also, please like, comment, subscribe, love, heart, thumbs up, and share the show. Give the gift of knowledge. Or something like that. Again, many thanks to my producer, Maria Perry. Thanks to the folks over at collaborator.com who help power this podcast. Collaborator is a media production service connecting media professionals to companies, brands, and agencies, allowing you to scale up your production based on your needs. Video professionals find work and companies save money. Are you a future casting director? Check out our partners, the Casting Society of America, for more information on how to become a casting director. To learn more about the society and what it takes to get into casting, you can visit castingsociety.com. Until next time, thank you very much for listening and be well.